Good morning, River Oaks. My name is Art Cash. I'm an elder here, uh, also discipleship pastor, and I'm excited to talk to you about Acts 7 this morning. We're going to be continuing in Acts 7, finishing up what happens with Stephen, verses 44 through 60. So many of us this morning, we might be familiar with the word martyr or martyrdom. Webster's defines a martyr as someone who willingly suffers death as the penalty of witnessing to and refusing to renounce a religion. The Greek translation of martyr means witness. And as you'll recall, all the way back in Acts 1-8, what this whole book is about is Jesus promises his followers that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we're seeing that promise begin to be fulfilled today. So as the early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We see how that starts with Stephen today. He's the first of many martyr witnesses who not only refuse to renounce Christ, but as they're dying, announce that Jesus Christ is God. And we're going to see in our passage that when you clearly speak out about sin, when you boldly proclaim Jesus, you will be hated for it. But there's hope because we'll also see when the time comes to stand for Christ, we will be able to stand faithfully because Jesus faithfully stands for us in the presence of God. That's our main idea this morning. We can stand for Jesus in the presence of hostility since Jesus stands for us in the presence of God. So as we read the passage in just a few minutes, I want you to listen for those couple themes that, that Stephen speaks like Jesus and Stephen suffers like Jesus. You'll recall that persecution, it's continuing to escalate for the early church, for the apostles. Think back, Peter and John, they've been threatened. They've been imprisoned. They've been silenced. They've been beaten for teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Stephen, one of the deacons chosen to serve in, in chapter 6, he's been accused by false witnesses of speaking against the law of Moses and the temple of God in Jerusalem. Stephen was seized and he was brought before the council of Jewish religious leaders. And in 7.1, the high priest says, are these things so? So let's pick up in verse 44 with Stephen's response. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Lord, please bless the, the reading and the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear the truth. Help us see your son more clearly because of this text. Help us love him more dearly because of what we see with Stephen. In Jesus' name, amen. So first we see that, that Stephen, he, he boldly speaks like Jesus. He's speaking about the temple and God's presence. If, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you, you may have some observations. You may have some thoughts about Stephen's speech. First, it's a speech, and it's lengthy. Okay, it's, it's long. It's safe to say that the attention span of the council, it's, it's better than ours in 2021. That's a fair criticism. But regardless of the length, the council, they've been listening carefully to Stephen's history lesson. They've been listening as, as he uses scripture, specifically historical narrative, to make his case. You could summarize Stephen's take on the temple like this. You, council, have elevated the place of worship over who you worship. That's his case. Chris helped us see that God's presence, it's not restricted to a place. Last week, Patrick showed us that God's presence, wherever that is, that's holy ground. And then we see in verses 44 through 50, Steve, Stephen building, I don't know if you'd care if I called him Steve, but Stephen building to this bold conclusion that the religious leaders, they've been elevating the temple over the actual presence of God. He makes his case from Isaiah. Here it is in 49 and 50. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen, he, he speaks like Jesus because just like Jesus, he knows the days of the temple in Jerusalem they're past. They're done. The temple is now obsolete because of the work of Christ on the cross. He's the one who now brings believers into the presence of God, not a place, a person. So we see this in Stephen's argument, the way he used history and the Bible. It may seem kind of odd to us, sort of foreign. We, we might think, let's engage in a dialogue. Let's see where the other person stands. Stephen, he's bringing in historical narrative to confront sin. He speaks this way because Jesus spoke this way. How many times would Jesus bring up a parable? How many times would he appeal to an account from the Old Testament to answer a skeptic or a critic? So think about the world that we live in right now, a world that's 
kind of done, sort of passing through the, the objective truth, like two plus two equals four, and more into a lived experience. My story is my truth. That's the very air that we breathe right now. This doesn't surprise God. There's nothing new under the sun. So what Stephen does here with narrative, it's helpful for us if we can follow his example. Here's what I mean. Let's say that you have a friend who says, hey, yeah, I believe in God. I, I know that, that Jesus is who he says he is, but I don't think that it's wrong for me to you know, live with my girlfriend or boyfriend before I'm married. I don't, I don't think that's a big deal. So you might be tempted with that friend to lead with, that's sexual immorality. Stop it. Don't do that. Now, you wouldn't be wrong by stating that truth. You wouldn't be wrong. But if we're learning from Stephen here a little bit, how could you build your case from a narrative with Jesus? You could lead with, let me tell you a story where Jesus is dealing with a, a situation very similar to yours. Then you share the account of John 8, the woman caught in adultery, that Jesus extends compassion. He extends forgiveness. And he says, don't sin anymore in this way. Don't sin anymore. You have brought that person into Jesus' story. So you might be thinking, I, I don't have a story for every situation or conversation I might encounter. I, I, I don't know the, the Bible that well. Here's a great motivation. Start by digging into the Gospels. For every objective truth that you would want to share with an unbeliever, a skeptic, an immature believer, search the Scripture for a narrative that also shares that truth. Again, the motive there is we're trying to connect scriptural truth and narrative with the person that we're talking to. Sam Chan does this brilliantly in his book, How to Talk About Jesus and Not Be That Guy. Everybody knows that guy, okay? So he helps us there, commend that book to you. But Stephen, he doesn't stop with just historical narrative, right? He shows us how to speak truthfully, boldly, and clearly about the nature of sin and the violation of God's law. Just look at 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So I don't know if it was body language. I don't know if it was the looks on their faces or Stephen was going there anyway. But at this point in this passage, he lights them up like a Christmas tree. He lights them up. Now I realize that Christmas trees were not invented at that time. I'm saying that for your benefit. He lights them up. Okay, he speaks truth. We can safely say that Stephen's not read any books on communication, right? He's not been to any marriage counseling classes. He uses phrases like, you always, like you want to, like Stephen, you're not supposed to say you always. You're supposed to say, I feel this when you that. You're not, this is, ooh, you always, slow down, Stephen. And then he says things like, you're just like your dad. It's, it's, it's right there. As your fathers did, so do you. Stephen, you're breaking every rule. What's, what's happening here? But in reality, Stephen speaks just like Jesus, who spoke directly and harshly to the hypocritical religious leaders of the day. Stephen speaks truth about the council's sin, 
and he pronounces a guilty verdict on those who should have been teaching the law, but instead are breaking it. So Stephen makes three accusations that, that build on themselves. It, they always resist God. And how are they doing that? They keep rejecting the people that, that God sends. And not only that, they're worse than their fathers because they killed the righteous one. So what does their resistance to God look like? In verse 51, Stephen calls the council a stiff-necked people. I don't know if you've ever had a stiff neck, but it's hard to turn to the right or the left when your neck is stiff. It means stubborn. It means unwilling, unable to turn and change direction. The thing is that everybody in that room knew that Stephen was quoting Exodus 32 and Exodus 33. When the Lord says to Moses, I've seen these people. Behold, they are stiff-necked. They know that Stephen is associating them with that quote. Stephen then calls the council uncircumcised in heart and ears. Circumcision, it was a, it was a Jewish practice that externally marked God's people. Those who were not circumcised did not belong to the community of God. Stephen, though, he doubles down. He says you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. They know that this phrase was, was used by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel to describe the internal condition of a people who were walking in open rebellion to God. They were dead to the truth and even unwilling to hear it. See what Stephen is doing here. He's not just calling the council stubborn. He's directly associating them and their current sin with Israel's long history of rebelling against God. So again, you're like, man, that's just first like 51. Stephen, just calm down for just a second. Let's let him breathe. Ask him maybe what they're thinking about this. No, he keeps pressing. He says to them, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He shifts his language there. Early in verse 44 and 45, you'll see, he, he, in the history lesson, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, says it three times. He's shifting here to make a distinction. He's now saying, your fathers, your fathers who continually resist the Holy Spirit, you're just like them. By rejecting Jesus, you join a long history of those who ultimately prove that they're not a part of the family of God. I don't know what this looked like, but just imagine for a minute all, all of these religious leaders in their pomp, in their circumstance, in their pageantry, in their pride, sitting around in this room completely and utterly confident in themselves, who they are, what they're saying, what they're doing. And Stephen has the audacity to say, you're not a part of the family of God. In verse 52, you can feel his sarcasm rhetorical power of this. Stephen, he doesn't just list the different prophets and messengers that they've killed along the way. He basically says there must have been so many that he asks them basically, which one of your fathers, which one of the prophets and messengers did they not kill? And not just any prophets, but specifically the ones who told them that the Messiah, the righteous one, was coming. And Stephen, he, he, he drives the dagger of truth into their dead, uncircumcised hearts. 
as he tells them they're worse than their fathers. He says, the righteous one, Jesus, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. So think, just a few months ago, in front of this same council, similar sham trial, similar sham witnesses, Jesus was condemned by this council to die on a Roman cross. But Stephen is saying to them, your fathers may have killed the prophets and the messengers that proclaimed he was to come, but you, you actually killed the one that they prophesied about. Not only have you elevated the temple above the presence of God, but verse 53, you've elevated your own view of the law above the very one who came to fulfill it. You had the presence of God right in front of you, and you killed him. That's what Stephen's saying. Case closed. By the end of Stephen's speech, we see that he's not defending himself. Rather, he's acting in the role of an Old Testament prophet bringing the truth of God and the guilt of sin to bear on man one more time, regardless of their willingness to hear it and regardless of what it might cost them. So what did it cost him? Before we get to that, we, we need to learn from Stephen. He speaks like Jesus. So if he speaks like Jesus, how can we learn from what he speaks and why he speaks it? When we consider what Stephen is saying, we need to think hard about what it means to be stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears for a moment, to be stubborn and always resisting God. You see what Stephen's doing here? He's he's boldly confronting the council's self-deception. They think there's something they're not. So dear friend, to speak as clearly as Stephen does, even if you regularly come to this place, this building, even if you regularly watch online, but you do not care about the presence of God, if you have a pattern of of resisting the Holy Spirit and being stiff-necked and stubborn when your sin is revealed and rebuked by the Word of God, do not be self-deceived. You are not who you think you are. We are not in the habit of trying to get people to doubt their salvation, but nor do we or does the Word of God offer false assurance if there's no evidence of saving faith. So ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart this morning. Please, if you regularly resist God and his word, let this be a gracious warning to you. If you can actually hear this warning this morning, praise God. That means that God has unstopped your ears. And it's a kindness from the Lord that there is still time to confess your rejection of him, to repent of your unbelief, and to follow Jesus. Why, though? Why does Stephen speak with such boldness and clarity? Is he trying to provoke a response? You're like, kind of listening to him, going, what are you after, Stephen? Is he just trying to win the argument, no matter the cost? No, I think it's a very specific reason. He's, He's being bold, and he's being clear in order to be understood. That's why Stephen uses the terms that he does. These these phrases, they may be unfamiliar to us, but they weren't to the council. Stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, resistant to the Holy Spirit, lawbreakers who killed and betrayed the righteous one. Stephen's clarity removes any possibility that he's going to be misunderstood. So, 
when it's time for us to be bold in our speech, when it's time for us to be clear about the destructiveness of sin and the hope offered in Jesus, we need to consider our motives. When you're in that situation, is it you just want to win that argument. You want to prove that you're right. You want to shut down the opponent. Stephen shows us very clearly that his primary motive is not to insult, but to speak with absolute integrity about the reality of the situation. He's being honest. You contrast that with his accuser's dishonesty and his honesty. What about when, though? Stephen, Stephen shows us when, to, to whom he's speaking. That, that matters. Who we speak in this way, how we speak to them, it matters. For example, if, if I'm speaking to someone who's being influenced by false teaching, my tone, my words they're much different than if I'm speaking directly to the false teacher. If I'm sitting across the, the table from someone that I know is mired in, in sin and there's any hope at all that it looks like they're going to turn away from that, I'm not just being bold and direct. I'm pleading. I'm begging. I'm being humble. I'm being tender. It matters to whom Stephen is speaking because Stephen's situation is completely different. He's speaking to the Jewish council the ones with political, judicial, and religious power in Israel. Stephen is speaking to unbelievers who are in power and have responsibility and influence over so many. He's speaking to those who are convinced of their own righteousness and moral positions. He's speaking to those who have repeatedly lied about what's good and what's evil and who continue to suppress the truth. So Acts has shown us how persecution is escalating for the early church as we consider our own culture, entertainment, political climate, even the posture of private corporations. It is not hard for us to see once again persecution will come for Christian in this place where the truth of a God's word meets the depravity of the world. Notice, Stephen didn't pick this fight. It's a, he, he didn't have his uh, smartphone. He, he wasn't scrolling through Facebook and going, man, I hate that opinion. I'm engaging right there. That's not what he did, right? He didn't pick this fight. It came to him. He was seized and brought before the council. So I will continue to submit to you that Christians in the West, we aren't picking this fight between religious liberties and manufactured artificial sexual liberties and rights. The battle is being picked for us by those in power. Therefore, let's bring those two ideas together, speaking to be understood to those in power, specifically to those who call evil good and good evil. So what's this look like? It's, this may mean being willing to speak truth to local and federal politicians. It could mean appearing before a school board. It could mean saying no to a supervisor in your workplace, a teacher, a coach, a mentor. We should speak boldly and clearly in order to be understood. 
That starts with being clear on the language that we use. Just one recent example where clear language was used to expose a lie and show what is true. This week, confirmation hearings were taking place for Rachel Levine, the nominee for Assistant Secretary of Health. Why is this important? Because in this role, Dr. Levine would be responsible for setting strategy and policy for the Department of Health and Human Services for the federal government of the United States. So in one enlightening exchange, Senator Rand Paul questioned Dr. Levine's viewpoint on this, on minors being able to take puberty blockers and have gender reassignment surgery. And brothers and sisters, this isn't political. This isn't right versus left. This is truth versus a lie. Levine's response was this. Transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field. And we've talked before about being able to spot the lie. Many times the lie is couched in obtuse, unclear language. So I appreciate Rand Paul speaking clear truth to a lie buried in an unclear answer. He called it genital mutilation. A minor being able to pursue that type of surgery, that type of medicine, genital mutilation. He called it what it is. It's basically state-sponsored child abuse. Brothers and sisters, we need to say the truth boldly and clearly to be understood. It's not divisive or hateful to speak what's true. It may hurt or offend. It may cost us. But thankfully, reactions don't determine what's right and true. God does. For believers, part of speaking boldly and clearly is also being able to articulate not just what we are against, but what are we for? We need to be able to clearly speak about God's beautiful design that we see in biology and scripture when we see that God created male and female. That's beautiful. That he designed marriage to be between a man and a woman, not just because the state says so or recognizes something, because it reflects the gospel. It reflects Jesus and his church. It reflects the beauty and design of God for his people. Part of speaking truth is not allowing critics to characterize us as pleasure-killing, self-righteous prudes. Our God invented pleasure. It's at his right hand we find pleasures evermore. Jesus invented joy. We do not allow that to be said against us. We speak truth to it. We must be clear in sharing that pleasure and joy comes from living in the world as God has designed it. Not just what we are against, but the beauty and the truth and the goodness of what we're for. That's speaking with boldness, clarity to be understood. So it costs him. It costs Stephen to speak this way. We see it in 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So speaking boldly and clearly, it's only part of the story for Stephen, right? We, we can tell from the council's reaction that when we speak about sin and about Jesus, we will be hated for it. This passage helps us prepare for any level of irrational rage that may come our way when we stand for Jesus. And if we're honest, this, this passage, it, it corrects us. It offers a correction to, that, to our desire, our, our version of a happy ending. What I always want to see in any story, in any movie, I want to see the hero against all odds vindicated because he stands for truth and justice and he rides off into the sunset. And that's not what we see here. This passage shows us that it's possible to stand for Jesus even if the outcome is the exact opposite of safety and security and a happy ending. We can see in 54, we can see in 57, the council's un, unhinged. They, they're enraged. They're cut to the heart. Their minds, literally, it means rent or torn in two with vexation. But don't miss this. Even after all the evil that the council has done, the mercy of God is being extended to them. They've heard biblical truth. Their sin has been boldly and clearly confronted. The council had the chance to respond with repentance. Instead, they respond with rage, with anger so intense they grind their teeth at Stephen. Later in 57, they, again, they can't bear his wisdom. They can't bear what he's seeing and what he's saying. So they actually shout to drown him out and stop their ears so they don't have to hear what he's saying as they rush to kill him. It's, it's childish if it weren't so horrific. Could there be a more graphic picture of a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people? It's easy to judge the council, but we need to learn from them. We need to learn. When our own sin is confronted, Or what are we filled with, anger or the Holy Spirit? We may not have a murderous rage, but it, it should be a red flag for us as Christians when our sin is confronted and we find our anger to be disproportionate, more than the situation calls for. This could, this could look like being overly defensive or even attacking the messenger. Just, just last week, I'm, I'm walking into the kitchen and I'm, I'm already complaining about something. And Hayden calls me out and says, you're complaining. And you can check the box. Go down the row and check the box of everything I did wrong. I denied it. I got angry about it. I didn't like the fact that he was confronting me in the way he was confronting me. And who he was in confronting me in front of. And I even tried to flip it back on him and say, is this what it's like when your friends have to hear what you think? Man, just going down the list here. Everything. I did it wrong. I'm thankful to the Holy Spirit that... The next day we talked about it and confessed that as sin. That I just I didn't like the way he approached me. Who 
cares how he approached me. He loved me and he pointed out my sin. So ask yourself, when your sin is pointed out, where is your anger aimed? The person who had the courage and the love for you to point it out? Or by the Spirit, is our anger rightly directed at our sin with the desire to confess and repent and be rid of it? So in verse 58, they cast him out of the city and they stone him. No awareness at all, the irony of what's happening. The council does exactly what Stephen predicted that they would do. They keep their hard-hearted, uncircumcised heart and ears, stubborn, stiff-necked ways fully intact, resisting the Holy Spirit, rejecting and killing God's messenger, and breaking the law which they've been given. False witnesses. Okay, they're stoning of Stephen. It was it was a mob lynching. Rome had taken away the Jews' ability to carry out capital punishment. There was no verdict. There was no legal process. Only a mob murdering an innocent man. I don't know if they were going to kill Stephen at at the end of verse 54, but by the end of verse 56, Stephen's death was guaranteed. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Standing at the right hand of God, that means equal with God. To the council, this is blasphemous. But this blasphemy is specific because Stephen says what? He says, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's speaking clearly. He's speaking boldly to be understood. This title, the Son of Man, it was Jesus' favorite description of himself in Luke. He used it no less than 18 times. And many times when he would use that title, he would connect himself as the Son of Man with only actions that God could do. Son of Man being the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man forgiving sins. Stephen by saying this, he's, he's following in his Savior's footsteps in both speech and suffering. Turn back to Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. 69. I, I want you to see exactly how Stephen is following in Jesus' footsteps. Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. Jesus is standing before the same council. They're asking Jesus, if you're the Christ, tell us. Jesus knows that they will not believe no matter what. So Jesus says in Luke twenty two sixty nine. 69, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They asked then, are you the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. That is a bold and clear claim that the son of man is equal with God and is the son of God. The council then hands Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. So when the council hears Stephen's confession, they know exactly what he's saying. That the righteous one, the son of man who they betrayed and murdered, he's not only alive, but equal with God, standing at the right hand of God. So they stone Stephen for this confession. They kill Stephen like they killed Jesus, both cast outside of the city, outside the walls of covenant protection, cut off. The Savior on a cross and the first Christian martyr crushed by stones. 
And stoning someone to death takes a long time. This level of, of exertion and violence, it's hot, it's sweaty. This is why in verse 58, they remove their garments. So they have complete range of motion to pick up the heaviest of stones and hurl them at Stephen until he's dead. It's gory. But even in the midst of this mob violence and perversion of justice, the Holy Spirit gives us a glimpse of hope. He gives us a redemption arc in the story. We see, just subtly placed right here in verse 58, the introduction of a man named Saul. A man that for now, according to chapter 8, verse 1, approved of Stephen's execution. But soon we will see how greatly he will be used for and suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. So as Stephen dies, he dies like Jesus. Echoing Jesus' prayers from the cross for the Lord Jesus to receive his spirit. And for the Lord to forgive the sins of those who are murdering him in verses 59 and 60. So not only does Stephen speak like Jesus, suffer like Jesus, and die like Jesus, he had prayer on his lips and forgiveness in his heart as he died like Jesus. Now, from our perspective, we, we see the council's rage it's, as an absurd overreaction. Remember, the council, they're operating from moral certainty. They are utterly convinced they are on the right side of God and of history. So again, we must be prepared when you speak clearly of sin and boldly about the hope in Jesus, you will be labeled as a bigot and as a threat to the emotional safety and well-being of others. You likely won't be murdered, but you will be punished. How, if that's the case, how can we respond like Stephen? How can we respond boldly, clearly, and with prayer and forgiveness in our hearts as we move out into a world that increasingly hates you because it first hated Jesus? How are we to be like Stephen? We can respond the way Stephen does because just like him, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and the Son of Man standing for us. That's how. So Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. We see it in verse 55. That same Holy Spirit indwells every believer in this room. So when the moment of conflict and confrontation comes, and it will come, the Spirit will empower you with calm confidence and trust in your Savior, no matter the cost. The council, I love the irony, they could have never imagined that one of their accusations about the presence of God is actually one of Stephen's greatest sources of strength. The presence of God in him and in every believer. The irony that the presence of God is in Stephen and in us through Jesus Christ. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the moment of a conflict, in the moment of a confrontation, that will matter. God's presence in you, calming you, giving you confidence in Him, not in yourself. So when it's time to speak truth and suffer for it, there won't just be a difference in our language and our demeanor, there'll be a difference in our hearts. 
than from our enemies who hate us because we are filled with the presence of God. But if you're like me, and there's one part of the story that appeals to me and one that doesn't, I, I like the, the speaking, the bold truth. I like that part of Stephen's story much more than the suffering and dying like Jesus part. I, I find the idea of standing for Jesus much more appealing than suffering for Jesus. But as believers, suffering is our call. As elders, as, as preachers and teachers, we need to be clear on that. that we, we cannot promise you a, a life of safety and security and happiness and comfort. We can promise you suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. We see it as Jesus tells us in Luke 9 to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So how do we suffer like Stephen, who suffered like Jesus? We suffer because Jesus has suffered for us once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. For just a second, think he, he absorbed our hostility so we can absorb the hostility of those that come against us when we're proclaiming the gospel. He absorbed our hatred. Ephesians 2 tells us that. Titus 2 tells us we hated one another. We were haters. And God saved us through the grace of Jesus Christ. We can absorb hostility and hatred because Jesus stands having absorbed our hostility and hatred so that he can bring us to God. The proof of that's in this passage. When the heavens open in verse 55, that's, that's a revelation from God. Twice, Stephen says he sees Jesus not seated, but standing at the right hand of God. Verse 55 and 56. Stephen sees the true and better reality not just this current life-threatening situation, life-ending situation. He sees the reality of what's happening in the heavens at that moment. And since he sees it, we're meant to see it. It's not only for his encouragement, it's for ours. This is the veil that's getting pulled back between earth and heaven to encourage us on, brothers and sisters. This is like when Elisha's fearful servant's eyes were opened and he's able to see the Lord's chariots of fire. This is like if we could see the great cloud of witnesses that in Hebrews 12, 1 are cheering us on in this race, that we would cast aside every sin and that we would run this race with endurance. We're seeing it right here. The veil is pulled back. So we see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What's he doing? He's standing to receive his brother Stephen and present him blameless and spotless to his father. We get to witness this so we can know that every time we take a stand for Jesus, there is a way in which Jesus is standing on our behalf before the father. And we can be confident because of our union with Christ that our standing with the father is secure forever. Jesus tells us so. He lives to intercede for us. It is possible, probable, it will happen that he will save you to the uttermost. 
He's bringing you into the presence of God because he lives to intercede for you. He tells us, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. We are seeing that. Everyone who acknowledges Jesus before men, the Son of Man, acknowledges before the angels of God. We are seeing that. So brothers and sisters, as we focus on the true and better reality, the eternity beyond this vapor of a life, we find that we have an advocate, a big brother in the throne room of heaven. We find that we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in us to testify to the truth that when you stand for Jesus, no matter the cost in this life, the Son of Man stands at the Father's right hand ready to receive you and rejoice with you into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the truth of this narrative that you allow us, ordain for us to see Stephen being martyred. Father, I pray that you would meet us where we are. If we're if we're the person that is, is chomping at the bit to be bold and, and, and direct, that you would show our hearts where we need to be speaking in a way to be understood out of love. If we're utterly fearful, encourage our hearts to be bold and clear. Jesus, you came and lived and died and were resurrected for us. This is the greatest treasure known to us. Jesus, empower us, please, by your spirit to be joyful, to be willing, to desire to share this truth no matter the cost. Because in reality, we will spend eternity with you. So it's completely worth it. Help us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.